0: Scripture reading this afternoon is from Psalm 25, as we've uh, finished our study of Second Timothy. We'll return to book one of, of the Psalms, or at least part of it, for the next several weeks. Um, Psalm 25 is on page 541. In your pew Bibles, it is a Psalm of David. We don't know exactly when it was written, but he is uh, surrounded here by enemies, and uh, in the midst of that, he cries out to God for help. Saying to you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, in you I trust. Let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemies exalt over me. Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. They shall be ashamed who are wantonly treacherous. Make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. He leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt for it is great. Who is the man who fears the Lord? Him will he instruct in the way that he should choose. His soul shall abide in well-being. His offspring shall inherit the land. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him, and he makes known to them his covenant. My eyes are ever toward the Lord, for he will pluck my feet out of the net. Turn to me and be gracious to me, for I am lonely and afflicted. The troubles of my heart are enlarged. Bring me out of my distresses. Consider my affliction and my trouble, and forgive all my sins. Consider how many are my foes, and with what violent hatred they hate me. O oh, guard my soul and deliver me. Let me not be put to shame, for I take refuge in you. Integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait for you. Redeem Israel, O oh God out of all his troubles. I've been uh, reading of late the letters of Samuel Rutherford, who wrote many of his pastoral letters uh, back in the 17th century to grieving correspondents, those who had lost children or a spouse, those who were battling with depression or other affliction came across one where uh, Rutherford, writing to a Mrs. Marion Minot, whose husband was quite ill, uh, said, I beseech you in the bowels of Jesus, welcome every rod of God. For I find not in the whole book of God a greater mark of the child of God than this, to fall down and kiss the feet of an angry God. And when he seems to put you away from him and loose your hands that grip him, to look up in faith and say, I shall not, I will not be put away from thee. Rutherford is, is saying that the mark of, of a child of God is that when affliction comes, you don't, you don't run away from God, but turn toward him. That, of course, is a main theme in the book of Job and in many of the Psalms that when affliction comes, the child of God falls down at the feet of the one from whom they come to kiss the feet of an angry God. Not that Rutherford is is, is saying the affliction that comes is, is an actual expression of God's anger, but he's saying experientially that's what it feels like. The mark of the child of God is to draw near to him even in those moments. And Psalm 25 is one of many prayers that demonstrates that for us, that as, as David is writing from a place of affliction, where verse 2, he, he says he is distressed by enemies who seek to put him to shame. Uh, verse 15, his, his feet are apparently uh, caught in, in the net. They, they've trapped him. He's lonely and afflicted. The troubles of his heart, he says, are, are enlarged, verse 17, and his many foes hate him with violent hatred. In the midst of all of that, David falls down in verse 1, and to use Rutherford's expression, he kisses the feet of an angry God, lifting up his soul to the one who who allows and so ultimately sends this affliction. To lift up your soul means to, to put your trust in something. If you can remember back a couple of months uh, in, into Psalm 24, you might recall that, that the psalmist there said, The one who may ascend into God's holy hill must not lift up his soul to what is false. Rather, translations must not lift up his soul to, to an idol, putting his trust in anything other than God. And now, just a couple of verses after that, in Psalm 25, we find the king, in a place of affliction, doing just that, putting his trust in God, lifting up his soul to nothing other and no one other than God himself. He doesn't trust in himself, but he admits his helplessness, that he he cannot remedy this situation himself. And then he asks God to to intervene and, and help him, praying that God would lead him and forgive him and redeem him. And he does so assured that God will. As the one to whom he prays in this psalm is the God of steadfast love and mercy. Even the brightness of that mercy is perhaps clouded by darkness, as we sang a moment ago, though dark his road. Nevertheless, David teaches us to kiss the feet of an angry God, and trust in the deep mercy of God, even in the dark clouds of affliction. So look with me first at David's admission of helplessness. He cannot fix this situation himself, but he needs God to save. He says this somewhat generally in verse 2, and he says, in you, O God, I, I put my trust. I don't put it in myself or anything or anyone else, but I put it in you, in you alone. As he says, apart from you, Lord, I I would be put to shame. Apart from you, my enemies would exalt over me. But I don't trust in myself. I trust in you. He says it again toward the end of the psalm. Verse 15, my eyes are ever toward the Lord. Boys and girls, when when your eyes are toward something, that that means that you're looking to that person or that thing to save you. When, When you're falling and your dad's right there, you look to him. Not to yourself, but, but you trust in his strength. So David does with God, for he will pluck my feet out of the net, David says. See He's confessing his inability to do what only God can. David in himself is lonely and afflicted, verse 16, dependent on God's grace, waiting for God to turn to him. Troubles of his heart are enlarged. He's in distress, verse 17, waiting for God to bring him out, to to consider his affliction and his trouble, even his sin, verse 18. See his weakness and help him. David throughout this psalm is confessing, I am weak, but he is strong. Many are my foes and they hate me with violent hatred and I I can't defeat them myself, verse 19, but you are the one, verse 20, who is able to guard and deliver me so I take refuge in you. For only you, verse 22, can redeem Israel from all his troubles. David throughout this psalm is confessing his weakness and setting his eyes on the God who saves. We see at the beginning of the psalm we see it at the end of the psalm. And we see in the middle how, how David understands that, that he may not begrudge God because of his affliction, but in, in his sinfulness, it is, in, in one sense, what he deserves, what all of us do. As in the middle of the psalm, he, he starts to, to speak of, of his sin and, and God's mercy, saying, Lord, remember your mercy, your steadfast love, they have been from of old. Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions, but remember mercy. And according to your steadfast love, remember me. He appeals to God's merciful and gracious condescension and the covenant promises that he's made. He doesn't appeal to his own righteousness or any claim on God's favor other than that God is merciful and from days of old has been a God of steadfast love. That word he uses for steadfast love is, is the word that comes up so often in the Psalms. Hesed, God's covenant love, his faithfulness to his promises. What one writer defines as when he from whom I have a right to expect nothing gives me everything. So implicit in David's appeal to God's steadfast love is an admission that he doesn't deserve it, that in himself he is weak, a sinner. Verse 7, remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions. Help me not because of who I am, but because of who you are. That's what he's saying. He admits his his, um, general weakness and helplessness at the beginning and end of the psalm. He he admits his his, uh, moral weakness here in the middle. Even his his mental weakness as as he needs God to teach him. Verse 4, he says, make known to me your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths lead me in your truth and teach me. Verse eight, instruct me, a sinner, and teach me your way. In verse nine, he places himself among the humble, those who who recognize their need to be taught. That, That our fall into sin affects even our minds, and so we don't possess all wisdom. But we need to be instructed, led, and taught by God. And especially in these kinds of difficult moments. Um, Dave the King is like a little child here reaching up to to grab the hand of his father saying, lead me and and show me the way. Keep me on the right path for left to myself I, I will stray. I won't know the way to go. So Father, you must lead me. You must teach me. That's a good prayer for us to pray when we don't know what to do. A good prayer for us to pray even as, as we start each day or as we open God's word or as we, we come to hear it preached. Lord, teach me and guide me. Show me your way for I, I cannot do it myself. Left to, to, on my own, I, I can't even understand your word but, but need the illumining power of your spirit. I need your strength to protect me from my enemies. I need your wisdom to overcome my ignorance and I need your grace to overcome my sin all throughout this psalm is an admission of David's utter helplessness. That the affliction he finds himself in is not something that he can get himself out of. And again, in one sense, it is not something that he's entirely innocent of. Though I want to be clear, he's not drawing a one to one correspondence between his, his circumstance and, and some particular sin. And, and though he does say in verse 21 that his cause is just and upright, he's admitting that, that he doesn't deserve to be free of all affliction, but is a sinner. And he casts himself, verse 6, entirely on the mercy of God. I'm John Calvin says, although the wicked did act toward him with cruelty and persecuted him unjustly, yet there is a sense in which he ascribes to his own sins all the misery he endured, for why else should he ask the forgiveness of sins because he acknowledged that he only suffered the punishment he deserved. And so he casts himself on God's free mercy. As we must do, admitting that we are weak and needy sinners looking to his strong arm to save. And That's the next thing that we see in this psalm. After admitting his, his helplessness, David then asks God for help, which is sort of implied in what we've already said. But look just a little bit more closely at what David asked God to help him with. And again, each of these points were sort of serving the psalm. One of the, the interesting things about a psalm like this, I think one of the comforts is that it, they're not always nice and, and tidy and structured, this point moves to this point, but sometimes they're, they're sort of all over the place, kind of like our prayers. And so David, uh, throughout the, the, the whole psalm, he's admitting his weakness, his helplessness, and, and throughout the whole psalm also, he's, he's asking God for help. And in verse 2, his, his most immediate need is these enemies who wish to triumph over him. Same enemies that we saw a moment ago in Psalm 109 or, or the same enemies that we meet at the very beginning of the Psalter in Psalms 1 and 2 who hate David the king because they hate God. And so David, as God's anointed king, is, is caught in, in the crosshairs of this great war between the seed of the woman and the seed of, of the serpent and Satan, the prince of darkness, hates him because he hates the Messiah who is in him. He wants to destroy God's kingdom by putting God's king to shame. Ultimately, David's great enemy is, is the servant who has been making war on God's people ever since the garden. And as we learn in Genesis 3, it's not just Satan, but but the conflict is between the, the uh, seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. Between Satan and his offspring and the seed of the woman, the, the messianic king, of whom David is a type. And to this opposition that he endures is not just from Satan himself, but from his offspring, those enemies in the plural of verse 2, the wantonly treacherous ones in verse 3, who betray what is right for no good reason. That's what it means to, to be wantonly treacherous, to betray what is right for no good reason. And that's what Satan and the unbelieving world have done. It's what we've done apart from grace. David is saying about the enemies of the gospel, they have betrayed the one who is the overflowing fount of all good for no good reason. They are wantonly treacherous. And these are are the ones who therefore oppose God's king. They have trapped him in their net, verse 15, falsely accusing him. We saw that same thing in Psalm 109. Slandering him, lying about him. They're hunting him down here and trying to kill him, even as they would David's son. Causing him to be lonely and afflicted, verse 16, while, while many are his foes, verse 19, who hate him with violent hatred. All this is what David asked God to rescue him from. And of course, as we look ahead to Christ, this is, we, we can see in a way that anticipates Christ who likewise entrusts himself to God as he is violently opposed by enemies of God. And David is in that same boat foreshadowing the affliction of the one who would come from his line. And like his son, he, he turns his eyes toward the Lord to save him asking God to save him from the devil and the world, these, these enemies of the gospel who hate him. But then unlike Christ, David also asked God to save him from his sin, I'm confessing that his sworn enemies, the devil, the world, and his own flesh never stop attacking him. We see the attacks of David's sinful flesh, especially in verses 7 and 11, where David speaks of the sins of his youth and and these transgressions that he wants God not to remember and and his guilt, which he says is great. Um, David, unlike the one who would come from his line, is a sinner. And so he cannot plead that all the affliction he endures is entirely undeserved, for no, his guilt is great. He understands the need to confess his sin. That the mercy he seeks is not what he naturally deserves, but he is plagued by enemies both without and within. He doesn't underestimate or minimize the power of that inward foe, but he he places the magnifying glass over it, so to speak, and, and says, my sin, Lord, is great. So I need you also to save me from myself. As we ask God to, to help him not only by, by saving him from his enemies, the devil and the world, but, but by pardoning his guilt and remembering not his sins, but mercy for his name's sake. It is God's name's sake and not David's. So there's a couple things here about verse 11. First of all, this, this plea for pardoning mercy is for God's name's sake. He's not asking this for the sake of who David is. But who God is. Jonathan Edwards said David has no expectation of pardon for the sake of any righteousness or worthiness of his own, but he begs that God would do it for God's name's sake, for his own glory, the glory of his own free grace, and for the honor of his covenant faithfulness. David's concern is the glory of God. That, that's what he wants most in this situation. That's another helpful thing for us to learn. Sometimes in our own affliction, we can, we can become so, so consumed with, with what's going on with us. But David teaches us here, even in those moments, to be concerned with the glory of God. In verse 22, he also teaches us to be concerned about all God's people. here's the second thing I want you to notice as he he prays for the glory of God in verse 11 for for, uh, God to to glorify himself through this this pardon. I want you to notice the the second part of his argument. He doesn't just ask that God will glorify himself in, in pardoning, but that he will specifically glorify himself in pardoning David's sin because it is great, he pleads the greatness of his sin as an argument for God's mercy. He doesn't say, as, as we often do with, with each other or perhaps with God, pardon my sin for, for really it, it's quite small. Maybe sin would even be too strong of a word. It's was, it was just sort of a mistake, lapse in judgment. He doesn't say pardon my sin for, for don't you know, Lord, that I've done lots of good to counteract it. Pardon my sin, for it's really not that big a deal in, in comparison to his sin or her sin. He says, no, pardon my sin, for it is great. He pleads the greatness of his sin to enforce his plea for pardon. He's like a, a beggar on the side of the road who, who lists on his, his piece of cardboard all the layers of his misery to elicit compassion from the one to whom he pleads. In that same way, David looks to the one who is merciful and abounding in steadfast love and trust that he will be moved to mercy by the misery of his case. For it is precisely in forgiving even the greatest sins that God is glorified. Again, to quote Edwards, the greatness of divine grace appears very much in this, that God by Christ saves the greatest offenders, The greater the guilt of any sinner is, the more wonderful and glorious the grace manifested in his pardon. Jesus, the Redeemer, is glorified that he proves sufficient to save those who are exceedingly sinful. It is the honor of Christ to save the greatest sinner as it is the honor of a physician to cure the most desperate disease. Christ is the great physician who comes not for the righteous but the sick. And in the same way that a doctor is glorified in being able to save from the worst maladies, so Christ is glorified in saving even the greatest sinner. Like Paul in 1 Timothy 1:15 calls himself the chief of sinners. Like David here, whose sins are very great. Not an impediment to God's mercy, but a trophy of his grace. And David shows us here how to ask. For God's help, we plead the greatness of our misery and the helplessness of our case for the glory of God who saves us from our sin and conquers our foes. And as we pray these things in the midst of our affliction, even in the midst of our own sin, we pray them finally, assured of God's help. Assured of God's mercy all throughout this psalm from start to finish is the confidence of one who is assured that God will answer. It says in verse 1, I lift up my soul to you, that is, I, I put my trust in you, O oh God. And it's been said that, that the rest of the psalm is, is really a, a commentary on that first verse. That note of humble trust and, and assurance in verse 1, where he says, I lift up my soul to you, God, is then, is then teased out and elaborated in the rest of the psalm. We're in verse 3, David says, no one who waits on God will be put to shame. The enemies of God will, those who are wantonly treacherous, but not God's people, not God's king. In verse 5, notice he refers to God as the God of, of his salvation the very name with which he names him, the very pronouns that he uses, my salvation attests to his assurance that God will answer. And so because he is assured of that, he waits on God all day long, his eyes ever toward him, verse 15, for he will pluck his feet from the net. Verse 15, all, or verse, verse 10, all his paths are steadfast love and faithfulness all of God's paths, all of his ways of dealing with his people are are out of steadfast love and faithfulness to his covenant promises. And then after stating that, this this objective truth about who God is and how he deals with his people, David then uh, applies subjectively to his own case to pray with the kind of assurance that he does in verse 11. Meditating on the truth of who God is leads him to pray with assurance. So may it be with us that as we meditate on who this God is and how he has acted towards his people in the past in in redemptive history, that would lead us then also to pray confidently as we wait on him. The the, the steadfast love and faithfulness, verse 10, will be ours. The pardoning mercy of verse 11, the, the promise of inheriting the earth in verse 13, the grace of God's friendship in verse 14. Or perhaps if you have a different translation there in verse 14 where it says that the friendship of the Lord is those who fear him. If you have a different translation, perhaps down in the footnote, it, it says other translations, the secret counsel of God. Literally, it's, it's speaking of, of how for those who fear God, one of the privileges that they enjoy is, is this secret counsel of God where, where he enjoys um, intimate friendship with him, the kinds of, of things that are shared between the closest of Companions. David is speaking here of, of a close, intimate communion between God and his people. At the end of the verse, a, a covenantal union, which maybe makes us think, as we heard this morning, of that, that intimate communion between God and his bride. All of this, David is assured, belongs to him. He believes that God will redeem Israel, verse 22, from all its troubles. As, as the troubles of the king trickle down to his people. He believes that God will also save them. He believes and shows us that God's salvation of, of him means he will save and redeem them. And David pleads the miserableness of his case, admitting his helplessness, He asks God to help him, begging for pardon and begging for relief from affliction and and for the smile of his covenant God upon him, verse 14. And he does so confident, assured that God will answer because of who this God is. The God of verse 6, from whom steadfast love and mercy are from of old who all his paths are steadfast love and faithfulness, verse 10. And so David is able to say, I lift up my soul and put my trust in you confident. He is assured as he admits his helplessness and asks God for help, that help is near at hand. That none who wait for God shall be put to shame. That's important, that word None. As in verse 22, David will extend this prayer also to us, that all Israel can make this prayer theirs as we too suffer affliction and weakness and are in need of God's grace. He wants in this psalm to assure us that God will answer. And so by the spirit of Christ who inspired, he gives us this prayer to pray also in times of affliction or the opposition of the devil and the world and our own sinful flesh pressing upon us and we feel that the loneliness or affliction of verse 16, the troubles of our heart enlarged, verse 17, or perhaps as in verse 18, we deal even with our own sin. Whatever the case, God in this psalm wants to assure us that where we are weak, he is strong. His steadfast love and mercy are from of old, and no one who puts their trust in him has ever been put to shame. And so whatever your trial or affliction, don't let it push you away from God. But like Rutherford said, let it teach you to kiss a striking God, to fall down and kiss the feet of an angry God, to look up in faith and say, I shall not, I will not be put away from you. But to you, O oh Lord, I lift up my soul. In you I trust, for you are gracious and good and forgiving. Your, your friendship is with those who fear you. You are the, the friend of sinners, a great physician who has sent your son to draw me into that sweet, intimate communion of which this psalm speaks. And you want to assure me that your steadfast love and mercy from of old are also for me. That, beloved, is why we're, we're given this psalm. So make use of it, read it, sing it, pray it, and let it, let it condition you and teach you to lift your soul up to God, even to kiss the feet of an angry God, turning to him in all your affliction, trusting that none who wait on him will ever be put to shame. Amen. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this psalm and we thank you for the example of David who prays by the spirit of Christ and so takes us by the hand teaching us how to pray to you in our weakness and our sin and affliction trusting that you are God and you are good and you will hear and no one who waits on you has ever been put to shame but your friendship is with those who fear you and you make known to them your covenant Lord, help us believe that so that even in affliction we might kiss the feet of a striking God and lift our souls to you whose steadfast love and mercy are from of old. We pray in Jesus' name.